Um, good evening or good morning, depending on where you are. Uh, before we begin, as a reflection of University of Sydney's recognition of the deep history and culture of the land on which it was built, I would like to acknowledge the tradition of custodianship and law of the country on which the University of Sydney camp campuses stand. They stand on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging, and I extend this acknowledgement to any other Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people online here with us today. I further acknowledge the traditional owners of the country on which you are on and pay respects to their elders past, present and future. My name is Goran Agrgic and I'm a senior lecturer at the United States Studies Center, as well as the Department of Government and International Relations at the University of Sydney. And if you have been paying attention for the past year, you would know that this event is uh, one in the series of talks we have with NATO experts as part of a joint initiative by the United States Studies Center and NATO's Public Diplomacy Division. Um, in this series, we try to explore the challenges ahead of NATO and Australia and propose areas where furthering and deepening cooperation can offer some solutions. Today on the agenda are the emerging and disruptive technologies, EDTs, and a key which are in fact a key facet of the NATO 2030 initiative, as well as an integral part of the discussions leading to the NATO's uh, new strategic concept, which uh, will be unveiled next year at the Madrid summit. So before we get underway, just a few housekeeping notes. Uh, we do encourage you to become part of these discussions and, and please do ask your questions as we go along. This can be done at any time by typing them into the Q&A box you'll see on the bottom of your screens. You can then ask and vote for questions and we will make sure that we go uh, through all of them uh, towards the latter half of our hour today. Apart from being streamed live on YouTube and Facebook, this discussion is also being recorded for later access on the US Study Center's media channels. But now back to the topic. Technological advancements that are being exploited for military and security purposes present both new opportunities for militaries around the world, as well as new threats that can emanate from both state and non-state actors. NATO has recently taken some decisive steps to retain its technological edge. It officially unveiled two new efforts meant to help the Alliance invest in critical next-gen technologies and avoid capability gaps among the allies. We will hear more about these initiatives as well as NATO's approach to emerging and disruptive technologies over the coming hours. To discuss both the risks and opportunities for NATO and allies, the ongoing work with public and private sector partners, academia and civil society in this domain, as well as the, the areas where partner states such as Australia can cooperate on matters of EDT. I am very happy to introduce the Secretary General's primary advisor on emerging security challenges and their implications for the security of the Alliance. Mr. David Van Veel is NATO's Assistant Secretary General for Emerging Security Challenges and a member of the Secretary General's senior management team. Prior to joining NATO, 
David was the foreign policy and defense advisor for the prime minister of the Netherlands. And prior to this, he had a long career in the Ministry of Defense of the Netherlands, where he held roles as the director for international affairs and operations after serving as the chief of cabinet for the minister of defense and the permanent secretary, as well as uh, being the senior policy officer for operations in Afghanistan and Libya, uh, and on issues such as nuclear uh, policy and disarmament, special operations, and the defense budget. So uh, we are in very capable hands here. Uh, the run sheet for today is uh, uh, as follows. We will have couple of minutes uh, first for Mr. Van Leel's uh, remarks, and then we'll get into a conversation mode. And as I said, I'll be looking closely into the Q&A box uh, to make sure that all of your questions uh, uh, get uh, a response and, and that we uh, keep this as lively and is, as interactive as possible. So uh, the floor is all yours. Well, thank you, Dr. Gergic. Good evening to uh, who's in city from a cold uh, and, and early Brussels. Uh, I'm really delighted to be the fourth speaker in this series, uh, and especially to see so much interest from our partners in Australia. I, I understand that this series has included a focus on critical topics to NATO, including on resilience and disinformation, uh, the NATO arms control agenda, and the outcomes of the Brussels summit. Uh, so that background gives me the opportunity to jump straight into NATO's approach to emerging and disruptive technologies, or as you said, EDTs, as well as innovation. As was previously touched upon when discussing the Brussels summit, allies agreed two exciting transatlantic defense innovation initiatives this past June. The first one is on a defense innovation accelerator for the North Atlantic, or in acronym DIANA an accelerated network that will foster transatlantic cooperation and exchanges on critical technologies by connecting the private sector and academia with the military. And in tandem, we're also establishing a NATO innovation fund. And this is a multinationally funded effort to provide venture financing to startups developing cutting edge technologies with a dual use. With private sector leading the way in innovation, NATO must adapt we must meaningfully engage with all actors to ensure that the development and adoption of EDTs is underpinned by our democratic values. And in all of this, we see collaboration with partners like Australia, which has an excellent innovation ecosystem of its own, to be beneficial. I believe that there are important overlaps in how we approach technology and innovation. We can also learn from Australia in many of these areas including building trust in autonomous systems and other emerging work strands that move away from traditional areas of capability development. Our shared values are the basis for these exchanges and how these inform our engineering practices and adoption pathways are equally important. So by now you've heard me mention dual use innovation a couple of times and let me expand on why exactly we're interested in these civil military links. We recognize that our most innovative technologies are no longer developed by the public sector, but instead by our civilian private sector and academia, financed by the private sector for commercial purposes. If dual-use companies that operate primarily in the commercial space can pull us towards their pace of innovation, then we can also pull their efficiency and iterative advancements into our systems. From a policy perspective, we also recognize that these emerging and disruptive technologies require a novel approach. If we treat these new technologies the same way that we've approached capability development and risk mitigation in the past, 
then we risk missing out on enormous opportunities to shape our strategic environment. And I would refer to those of you tuning in tonight to read the public summary of the artificial intelligence strategy, which is available at the NATO website. We see it as essential to issue our public facing approach to this foundational technology. And let me explain that approach here. At NATO, allies agreed the coherent implementation strategy on emerging and disruptive technologies last February. This overarching document establishes how the Alliance can best foster and protect allied developments in key technology areas, including artificial intelligence, data, autonomy, quantum technologies, and biotechnologies and human enhancement. Earlier this year, allies agreed the first ever strategy on AI founded in robust principles of responsible use, thereby positioning NATO as a thought leader in ethical use of AI in defense. And we recognize that this is status we have to earn, which is why we will be focusing on operationalizing our principles in the months ahead. At the same time, allies have also agreed to the data exploitation framework policy with concrete measures to treat data as a shared strategic resource. And I mentioned this because our approaches to data and AI are naturally interdependent. And what this means for us, and this is true of how we look at all EDTs, is that we put a prime on coherence. The interdependencies between technologies, not just data and AI, but also others like autonomy, quantum, biotechnology, means that innovation is increasingly characterized by technological convergence. And it's important for us to remember as an alliance because it's precisely this convergence that shapes the trajectory of innovation in front of us. On their own, technologies like AI, autonomy, or quantum science pose new challenges and significant opportunities for the ways we defend ourselves. But when combined, the transformative power of these technologies is even higher. For example, among other outputs, machine learning can be used to detect anomalous patterns in code to strengthen our cyber defense. AI supported synthetic biology can lead to new cutting edge camouflage solutions to make it harder for adversaries to detect our forces. And quantum information science can enable green solutions to our increasingly digital futures. For example, by unlocking new chemical combinations for green energy generation and storage. Safeguarding NATO's technological edge depends on how we understand and how we act on the disruptive effects that they breed. So be it in our approach to deep tech through our innovation initiatives or our policy approaches to these basic technologies, we recognize that we're in a rapidly evolving environment. And to navigate this environment, cooperation is absolutely critical. NATO is a natural forum for this cooperation. And with the shape and scale of technological change ahead of us, partnerships with countries like Australia offer excellent opportunities to develop and shape norms, to embed our shared values in technological development, to exchange best practices on trust and cooperation with commercially driven innovation sectors, and, and much more. But let me stop there, Dr. Gergic, and I look forward to continuing our conversation and, and answering some of your questions, hopefully. That's excellent, and thank you so much. And thank you also to the audience. As I can see, the uh, Q&A box is starting to, to nicely fill up also with some questions that I have here uh, pre-prepared already. 
Um, I want to uh, start off as I normally do with my academic head on and, and uh, kind of uh, start us maybe from a, a more macro perspective here. And um, that is uh, this whole idea of, of the impact of modern technology on security. Obviously, this is a central concern for military science. And from a perspective of someone who is a, a, both a student and a teacher of uh, US foreign policy, uh, I recall obviously the, the kind of literature of the late 90s and 2000s was filled with statements like the technological race of the current era is just beginning. Maintaining an advantage requires cons constant improvements, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so this was very much the kind of era of revolution in military affairs. But now uh, it again comes up this idea that we are living through a technological revolution. And as a result, obviously one in the conduct of military affairs. We accept that as true. But in your mind, if we were to compare to, to just, you know, what happened 20 years ago when, when this was kind of the discourse that was very much in vogue, what would you say, how is this time different? Is it the blurring of the public and private sphere and what you mentioned around kind of dual uses? Is it the nature of rivals and competitors who are also able to use this? Is, the, is it the rise of, of just uh, kind of non-state actors? Um, what are your thoughts in, in terms of um, the, this kind of technological advancements in the context of, of the world in uh, the, the third decade of the 21st century? Thanks for the question. I, I think it's all of the above. That's my short answer. Um, so it's a combination. But at, at the heart of the situation that we're in now uh, is the steadily decline over the past four decades in uh, investment in research and development uh, by the public sectors in our nations. Uh, in new technologies. So slowly we've began to recede from the area of uh, research and development. We've left this to the private sector, to academia, um, uh, thereby uh, uh, creating a world where new technologies uh, only arise when they have a commercial use, uh, uh, thereby creating a world where the military uh, is not up to speed on what new technologies are arising as opposed to the 80s when inventions like GPS uh, uh, started in the military and then became commercially viable. It's completely the other way around now. And, and we have to reconnect to these innovation ecosystems in order to see what technologies are around the corner, what potential security implications they might have, both in opportunities and in threats, uh, thereby making sure that we create a new kind of dual use uh, which means uh, uh, that we're early adapters in the military, uh, uh, but still uh, uh, with technologies that will no longer be solely built for the military because that's not the way that innovation works nowadays. Uh, and that brings a challenge with it, is, is in how do you regulate all these uh, new technologies? Uh, how do you make sure that uh, our values are embedded in those technologies? Uh, uh, the, the, the risks of under-regulation we're all seeing now with big tech. Uh, I think we're slowly waking up to the fact that we've let the unregulated space uh, in which they operate uh, for too long. And this is having impacts on our democracies, on our uh, mental well-being of our citizens, uh, on our security. Um, so the aim at NATO now is to make sure that we catch up 
with technology, uh, that we become a trusted partner uh, in the ecosystems where these technologies are being developed, so that we're early in adopting them, uh, we're early in deciding how to protect them from our adversaries, uh, and that we're early in making sure that we also set the rules and the standards for these new technologies. That's excellent. And uh, one of the things that you mentioned here in terms of the location of innovation brings me to another question. And uh, that relates to, well, the fact that we are able to communicate uh, today is owing to the invention of internet, which was obviously something that uh, very much came as a result of the investments that were made, made uh, through the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency or DARPA another five-letter acronym that starts with a D. So uh, Diana has been, or the uh, Defense Innovator Accelerator, has been said to be uh, modeled uh, on, on DARPA. And, you know, in the United States these days, maybe there isn't a lot of bipartisanship uh, a lot of the days, but uh, it seems to me that at least in the Congress, there is a view that DARPA is a model for innovation uh, both inside and outside of the federal government. So could you um, uh, tell us a bit more on, on the kind of origins of Diana and the, the kind of road to uh, agreeing uh, that this is something that uh, NATO should be pursuing and uh, the fact that it was signed by, uh, I note 17 of the member states. So uh, I've, I've heard or I've seen some of your comments around uh, there being variety of reasons why the other 13 were left uh, kind of missing in action on this one. But um, yeah, so uh, getting to Diana and and uh, where where we might uh, uh, see it go. Yeah, thank you. And I have to say that I, I like the acronym Diana better than DARPA. Uh, but on the other hand, the reputation of DARPA and what it's achieved, of course, uh, is something that Diana can only look up to uh, and hopefully uh, uh, get near to in the future. Um, so yes, there is inspiration of DARPA in the design of Diana, uh, uh, but also from other uh, uh, U.S. institutions like FWorks or uh, DIUX, uh, uh, and also from initiatives in other nations uh, and, and allied countries uh, like the UK uh, DASA or the French uh, Defense Innovation uh, Agency. Um, so there's a lot of initiatives out there, and I think that the the, the, the common denominator is that is the realization uh, that you need to have a uh, connection to these innovation ecosystems uh, that are actually physically uh, co-located in spaces. Uh, this doesn't happen uh, 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 online. It happens in, in communities, in universities, in, 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 in buildings where people meet each other, where there's a vibe of, of innovation. Uh, and we need to reconnect to that. I think that that's what all these programs have in common. Uh, what they also have in common is that this needs uh, flexibility, uh, agility, uh, 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 least bureaucracy possible, uh, and it needs uh, to be uh, taking risks. Uh, not all these initiatives will succeed. Uh, and this, of course, is something to bring into a environment like NATO, uh, which is probably one of the largest bureaucracies in the world, is kind of a challenge. So Diana has its own model uh, because it's constructed by 30 allies. Uh, so you mentioned the 17, that was for the innovation fund, uh, but Diana will be at 30. Uh, and Diana will, will consist of a hybrid model. 
So Diana will have headquarters on both sides of the Atlantic where challenge managers will be in charge of working on the problem sets that the 30 allies give to Diana on a biannual basis. And then Diana will make use of existing structures in the uh, uh, nations. So existing accelerator sites uh, and existing test centers uh, scattered across the alliance. Now, why would NATO do that? Uh, that's because we have a, a, a huge economy of scale if we work at 30. So we have the potential of the best test centers uh, scattered across Europe. That also means that if you're a startup uh, working in Rome and you have a test center that is in uh, Rome, uh, then that's easy because startups are not flying all over the world to develop their products. So one, it's in your vicinity. Two, it makes sure that we can tap into all these 30 innovation uh, ecosystems, uh, uh, thereby getting the best from 30 nations uh, into uh, the solution of a possible uh, problem instead of one. And of course, for smaller nations, this is a big opportunity. It creates a bigger market because you have a potential of 30 uh, militaries uh, for your product, uh, uh, thereby also helping interoperability because we're not designing anti-drone systems in all 30 nations. Uh, but Diana, for example, will be doing this, uh, creating one standard, uh, one uh, solution. Uh, and we're harnessing uh, the scientific power of 30 allies. So the NATO <coughs> Science and Technology Organization has five and a half thousands of the best uh, 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 academics uh, in our uh, allied countries united uh, that can help us in evaluating proposals, in helping mature technology, uh, in interacting with end users, uh, in, in, in creating new technologies. So uh, in, in, in short, uh, I think that Diana uh, is not replacing anything that exists, uh, but it's harnessing the potential at 30 and thereby creating a large network that will hopefully uh, 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 allow us to, to tap into all the potential that we have. The Innovation Fund uh, uh, is, is separate but connected. That is multinationally funded. Uh, 17 nations signed up to it. I have to say by now we're up to 20 already. Uh, so we have two thirds of the, the allies uh, on board uh, and I expect more to follow uh, because those 20 have now begun to set up the limited partner agreement of the venture capital fund. Um, but when they've done that, uh, and that will be before the summer, uh, others will get the chance to sign up to the uh, partner agreement as it then stands. And the connection between the two um, is that if you have promising startups going through the Diana Accelerator program that get to a maturity uh, where they actually have to scale up in order to become viable. That is the moment where there's a gap in the dual use world for security and defense, where private capital is risk averse uh, at this time, uh, hesitating to step in. It's called the Death Valley. Uh, and how do you keep those companies alive uh, into the next phase of their existence? That is where the NATO Innovation Fund comes in. And it would not uh, be the sole investor, uh, but by proving that NATO has trust in a certain company to succeed in this sector, uh, hopefully that will uh, in turn crowd in uh, venture capital that is now hesitant to step in. Thank you so much for teasing out the differences then between Diana and, and the uh, investment fund. And maybe just to quickly follow up then on, on um, 
the uh, monetary uh, aspect and, and kind of the sums attached to each. So uh, am I right to understand the investment fund at the moment is around 1 billion or so in terms of commitment? And how do you then expect the uh, that Diana will be funded? There was some talk I noted around uh, particular kind of percentages of contributions that will be made by allied states. But uh, what is what is the, the, the kind of estimate uh, for Diana's budget? So Diana will actually be very mean and lean. Uh, as I mentioned, it will have offices on, on two sides of the ocean. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it will have challenge managers and and there's a bit of bureaucracy coming there because somebody has to turn on the light and pick up the phone and and um, uh, but but there they, they will be small offices uh, so it's very unlike the headquarters that I'm in now with 5,000 people uh, uh, crowding in every day and and in a very impressive building um, this will be very approachable uh, it will be co-located uh, in uh, one of these innovation hubs uh, uh, interacting uh, actually with the ecosystem that it that it needs to uh, interact with, uh, and then the accelerator sites and the test centers are existing already in these nations. So all the accelerator sites will do is uh, run a separate NATO accelerator program uh, for the specific purpose of Diana. Um, because they already have the connection to the e ecosystem. They know uh, the communities and the community knows them. Um, so that's an added benefit. And the test centers uh, are existing. And, and I can name you one, uh, but we've been offered 30 test centers. And one of them is the Niels Bohr Quantum Institute in uh, Copenhagen. Um, so we really have the world-class uh, uh, test centers uh, that, that uh, the NATO innovators can use through the Diana program. Uh, but we don't have to build them, uh, thank God, because we, we have to build quantum labs, then uh, the price tag would, would certainly go up. Uh, but it, it's it's mainly leveraging what's already there. So uh, we'll, we'll, we'll give it at a discount to the allies. That's good. A, a discount, but not uh, discounted quality necessarily. Um, so this is what in international relations kind of scholarship we call solving some of these issues of coordination and collaboration. It strikes me that a lot of that is, is being done uh, in, in uh, having that kind of central hub, but still leveraging those assets that are present in the member states. Um, I can see we, we already have tons of questions and some of them actually uh, speak directly to a couple of more that I have pre-prepared. So uh, thank you, Christopher Skinner, also for, for raising this one. Uh, and this is uh, moving us a bit more into, into the substance of some of the innovation that's taking place, namely uh, the, the kind of uh, uh, perennial issue of, of ethics. Uh, and um, in specific, there was some mention here in the question around the integration of autonomy into weapon systems, but I would I would put it more broadly as ethical issues in general. I do know that uh, allies have recently agreed on NATO's first ever artificial intelligence strategy. So there's certainly some talk of setting standards uh, and, and uh, rules of the road. But uh, you know yourself best that uh, over the past uh, certainly decade or so, we've, all, we've, we've had a lot of headlines that would go like, you know, um, the US Army wants to build, you know, a, a AI powered killing machines or scientists have come together to protest 
a program that would create these um, insect allies that would, you know, leverage kind of biological uh, uh, weapons in a way that uh, could have uh, far-reaching implications for uh, the crops and, and agriculture in, in general. And obviously this raises a lot of, uh, uh, first of all, publicity, but then uh, makes uh, some of some of these institutions have to uh, walk back and, and kind of uh, do a lot of explaining as to what these programs are and how they actually follow standards and, and manuals uh, on uh, using uh, these these in innovations or particular types of systems. So uh, to kind of uh, hopefully you've had a chance to to take a sip of water there, but um, maybe maybe uh, 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 then the issue of uh, ethics, uh, whether it's related to uh, autonomous uh, um, weapons or uh, more more broadly. Well, I always get the killer robot question within the first minute of of uh, any appearance, uh, and, and I'm glad as you that state, then I, I broke that tradition. Then, <laughs> <laughs> as you state, uh, I like to look at it more broadly. Um, so, as new technologies emerge, as they always have, uh, uh, there will always be a dual use, whether uh, we like it or not. Um, but whether it was a steam engine or electricity uh, being invented, uh, it is inconceivable that it would not be used or misused for defense or security purposes. So if you take that as a uh, fact of life, that you cannot shield technology from a certain uh, uh, sector, uh, then the question is, how do you want to approach the defense use of these new technologies? Now, as I said, 40 years ago, that was not a question because most of the new technology started in the defense sector. Uh, GPS, uh, the internet, uh, uh, the, the, the mRNA vaccines that we're now getting, uh, they, are all, uh, they all came from the defense uh, sector. So the defense sector was seen as driving technology. Now it's the other way around. Uh, and, and, and that leads to all these questions, whether or not you can shield defense or the defense sector from these technologies. Uh, and my plea is not to do it. Uh, my plea is to, as we've always done, embrace new technologies, uh, understand them, uh, look at the potential security implications of those technologies, because the fact that we wouldn't use it doesn't mean that our adversaries would not use those technologies. So we need an in-depth knowledge. And then the question is more, what do you do with these technologies? How do you approach them from an ethical point of view? And that's where we need to bring our own values and norms into the use of this technology. And the AI strategy that you mentioned uh, is our first uh, proof of, of how we intend to do that. Uh, but the data expectation framework policy that I mentioned, uh, which is not public, but has the same principles of responsible use. So yes, uh, uh, as with all weapon systems, uh, as with all technology uh, that we use in our Western uh, armed forces, uh, ethics come along with the use of that technology. Now, the difficulty with something like AI is that uh, uh, the ethics don't always come at the end. The ethics have to start with the development because it's a bit of software that we're uh, ingraining. And that's why I said operationalizing of these principles is important. Uh, because uh, we have to assure that from the moment uh, the software coding process begins, uh, that the principles that we adhere to are actually being ingrained into the AI that's being used. 
Uh, and we need to be able to verify that in test centers. And we need to have protocols to do that. Uh, and we need the private sector to understand that if you want to do business with NATO or NATO nations for defense and security purposes, then that's exactly what you need to adhere to. Uh, and it includes things like lawfulness, like, like uh, um, accountability, uh, bias mitigation. So all the things that as societies we deem important, uh, we have now adopted as 30 allies as being essential uh, in order for us to use AI. And then to say that AI could not be used for defense purposes uh, is ridiculous. Because uh, an F-35 at the moment uses a lot of AI processes in order to process information. Uh, uh, your iPhone uses AI uh, in order to make sure that if you press the button uh, uh, and make a picture, uh, uh, that you actually get something that looks rather professional uh, without you uh, having having studied, studied uh, on how to uh, uh, adjust your, your camera lenses. So AI is uh, everywhere. It's a pervasive technology. Um, now, the specific combination of autonomy and AI uh, and there uh, and the use of lethal force against human beings because that is the very specific very narrow focus uh, case that we're looking at uh, of course at this moment uh, I think we all agree uh, that having autonomous weapon systems uh, killing humans uh, autonomously without any human interaction uh, is not something that fit into our fits into our uh, ethical principles uh, uh, so uh, uh, that, that, that's where we stand now. Uh, but I would say, uh, as we're looking at the self-driving cars in San Francisco uh, and the enormous increase of the capabilities of uh, uh, self-driving cars and, 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 and the software, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if in 10 years uh, you would get a fine if you drive yourself in San Francisco instead of put your car on uh, self-drive because you're behaving uh, recklessly uh, because a self-driving car will prevent much more accidents and collateral damage than you as a human can. We're not there now, uh, but I'm pretty sure we'll get there. Um, and at that point, uh, we will have to start the discussion again, whether or not uh, the use of AI to assist us in preventing collateral damage, uh, uh, which might proven uh, uh, result in, in, in a reduce of that uh, would not be something that we would want to embrace. As said, that's, that's something provocative for the future, uh, uh, but the ethics uh, go much broader uh, than this one use case. Yeah, and it's interesting certainly to observe the way uh, in which just the technological advancements have been kind of racing with with the the kind of uh, the the ethics and 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 uh, the moral sort of principles and and the role for philosophers actually uh, to play uh, moving forward. But yeah, certainly these days we are still more scared, I guess, of people who are playing video games and and uh, driving in self-driving cars. At least that was a headline uh, in in one of the papers <laughs> a couple of. Days days ago. Um, there is a follow-up, uh, again, uh, I, I thank Christopher Skinner for posing this one, around the ethical use of AI being only effective if our antagonists follow the same rules. How does NATO address this? Yeah, uh, I, I don't think we'll get a global treaty on the responsible use of AI for security and defense. Um, one, because I think that our values differ too much 
in order to be able to come to this consolidated uh, view. Uh, second, because uh, unlike with nuclear weapons, uh, uh, where you can actually verify, you can have export controls, uh, uh, you have uh, uh, physical structures uh, that you can monitor, uh, AI uh, um, is, 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 is very hard to verify whether or not uh, your opponents uh, are adhering uh, to the principles uh, that we all agreed on. Um, so getting a better view on what's happening also uh, uh, in, in the nations of our adversaries and competitors with regards to the development of AI use for defense is a very large part of our strategy. Uh, we need to know uh, uh, what can be used against us uh, in, in case of conflict. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to copy that uh, behavior. Uh, the question is just how do you defend against the, 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 the unethical use uh, of, for example, AI uh, in, 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 in the battlefield? Um, and that's part of the discussion that where NATO feels we have a role to play uh, to feed into the general debate on how do you regulate AI to feed this security and defense aspect from a threat perspective, uh, but also from a use perspective, to feed that into the general debate. So for example, in, in the European Union, there is now legislation in being on the use of AI, the restrictions on AI, uh, the definitions of AI, uh, and then there's an exclusion clause uh, for uh, uh, AI that is specifically designed for national security or defense purposes. Um, I, I would rather have a more inclusive legislation, uh, but then based on the input uh, from a security and defense perspective. So having more holistic legislature, uh, because the dual use nature of these technologies uh, makes it very difficult to define what is specific for a security use and what is more for commercial use. It, it all interflows, uh, but let's be realistic about uh, what we also need to defend ourselves. And, and let me name drone swarming as an, as an example. The technology is not there yet on a large scale, but it's really around the corner. Um, uh, and at the moment, we're defending against drones uh, with other drones that cast net over the drones that you want to stop uh, uh, and then drop them somewhere in a canal or somewhere where it can't do any damage. Now, that's uh, sort of working on a one-to-one -one basis, uh, but how are we going to do this with a drone swarm of 300 uh, explosive uh, drones uh, coming towards us in conjunction? Uh, we need AI, we need autonomy, uh, we need that technology in order to design systems uh, that can help us there. So to have that awareness of what we might need ourselves to defend uh, is a critical part of the whole debate on how to approach ethics. Crucial to this, if I can, uh, Doctor, is, is, is one thing. And I sat on a panel where uh, uh, a professor of a renowned Western university uh, said in two consecutive sentences, the social credit system that China uses uh, is positive and necessary because they had a big problem with jaywalking in Beijing. And the next sentence was, I'm really afraid that NATO uh, or allied countries will use AI for defense purposes. Um, now, that, that means we have a problem. Uh, we have a problem in perception of uh, 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 trust in our own uh, defenses that come from our own de democratic values and, and norms. And this is 
being spread into our universities. So there's a, an a aver, averse uh, atmosphere as to working with our own uh, uh, defense ministries and, and, and industry, uh, whilst at the same time, uh, we see that we are producing technology uh, for regimes uh, that completely don't adhere to our uh, democratic norms and values. Uh, so that's something that we need to uh, we need to work on. So hopefully, uh, for uh, like this one uh, and and more conversations and pointing out maybe to some of these logical fallacies would be a step in the right direction. I think, and I would certainly subscribe to to the notion that there is uh, uh, at least uh, to to start with some some cognitive dissonance there with uh, with that example that you have given. Um, but also, uh, we are uh, slowly getting to the the last part of our conversation here, given that we have just about 15 or so minutes uh, left. Uh, we did mention killer drones and so killer robots and, and drone swarms. So I think we've ticked the boxes in terms of things that, you know, are uh, usually, you know, those that that uh, make people kind of stay up uh, uh, late at night and, and worry about the technological progress um, when, when transplanted into military affairs. But let me uh, shift gears somewhat and um, maybe preface this by saying, you know, is there some sort of defense for the mundane and the kind of role that legacy systems and low tech uh, might play in the future of warfare. Uh, I know there was one question here that uh, basically asked whether, you know, quantum computing or hypersonic weapons are just basically enhancements on existing concepts. But I would just say, you know, um, more broadly, again, um, just uh, until a couple of years ago, NATO was way more uh, uh, interested in and worried about asymmetric warfare, right? And the potential for uh, especially non-state actors to wreak havoc uh, using things that aren't necessarily super advanced. So maybe, you know, there are a couple of aspects to this question, but what do you see, um, uh, what, what's the role for legacy systems, for low-tech uh, um, technologies uh, in the future of warfare? Will they complement or will they hinder uh, present innovation initiatives? Um, how might we deal with that sort of path dependence, if you wish, moving forward? especially in bureaucratic and hierarchical organizations, as you said, uh, you yourself are sitting in. Oh, yes. Uh, and, and I'm certainly seen as a disruptor here internally, uh, which is exactly what I was hired to do. So I'm, I'm, <laughs> I, I'm proud to be. Uh, I, I think it's a combination. Uh, it's revolution and evolution. Uh, but I think that up till now, we've been too much in an evolution uh, mindset um and and we need to have a bit more of the revolution mindset especially as we see that our potential adversaries and competitors uh, are working on the revolution uh, uh skill as well as the evolution uh, skill so no legacy systems won't go away uh at the same time we have to uh challenge ourselves continuously uh whether or not the problem we're trying to solve uh, can be solved in a different way than by replacing the current legacy system that we have with something that looks like it, but is a little bit bigger, faster, uh, uh, and can shoot a little bit further. And, and that's the kind of challenge uh, where Diana is going to help us. It, it will be a kind of a disruptive element in the ecosystem of NATO. 
where you can bring problems there uh, and see what kind of possible solutions are there without predefining the outcome. And, and, and now I would say that most of our defense systems work on the basis of military requirements um, that quite specifically state uh, what kind of new system is needed with what capabilities. That is denying the potential that there might be a technology out there uh, that can solve the problem you're trying to solve, but in a completely different way. So just off the top of my mind, uh, 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 we're, we're now looking at Russia uh, having ballistic missiles to shoot down satellites. Uh, and we've seen an example of that uh, a few weeks ago when, when they uh, performed a test. Now that's a big problem if you're relying on uh, single uh, satellites uh, for, for example, espionage or communication. Uh, but now let's look at SpaceX and their Starlink system. So there's already 2,500 satellites up there. Uh, they will go up to, I think, about 4,500. Uh, uh, it's a mesh network, so uh, you can shoot down 100 if you want, uh, uh, but you will not degrade the network. Uh, uh, it provides a worldwide broadband coverage uh, and all the satellites come back to Earth within two years because they realize that their technology will be obsolete uh, uh, within that time frame. So they need to replace it. It's a completely different way of looking at the problem you're trying to solve, which is how can we have reliable worldwide communication? So to have more of that disruptive mindset into the defense planning process uh, might help us. And, and do new technologies provide a complete disruption or, or not? Um, some will, some won't. Uh, you could state that hypersonics is uh, a gradual evolution uh, because it's just a faster missile. So you need better missile defense. So that's a classical uh, arms race, I would say. Uh, but if we look at quantum and quantum sensing, uh, and if the result of quantum sensing uh, or quantum radars would be that we could see submarines at a depth of 500 meters, uh, uh, then I would say that that's quite disruptive uh, for, for example, a country like Australia that's now ordering submarines uh, that will only be there in 20 years. Uh, which technology will be first and what are strategic implications. So we need to, I don't know all the answers, but we need to be very connected uh, to the potential uh, uh, disruptions that might arise. And as they say, sometimes it's just about asking those right questions, not necessarily having uh, all the, the, the answers. Uh, and thank you for that segue, because my next question uh, was uh, about Australia and partners more broadly. So uh, scrolling through your Twitter feed, I saw that you had some discussions with uh, your Australian counterpart. So uh, the ambassador for cyber affairs and critical technology uh, of Australia, uh, Tobias Fikin visited NATO HQ just recently. So um, what is uh, the role of partners, some of these partners across the globe or partners in general, uh, especially when uh, it comes to some of these uh, technologies that are critical, where sovereignty really does matter, where maybe sometimes the, the reflex would be to to um, not necessarily overshare. Uh, how do you overcome this? And do you see potential actually for expanding partnership? Yeah, I, I think that, that the underlying questions, and we touch upon it in, in the ethics piece, is that uh, 
critical in these new technologies is the mindset that you bring to the table and the use of these technologies. Um, so our democratic values um, uh, that are really ingrained in our society, uh, in our systems, uh, I would hope that they will prevail uh, in the use of these technologies in, in the future. Uh, and that means that, that as democratic countries uh, and like-minded countries, we need to work together, stick together uh, to make sure that we have a critical mass uh, to ensure uh, the, the worldwide standard uh, is actually our standard and, and not uh, a standard that comes from a more totalitarian or autocratic uh, perspective. Uh, their cooperation with, with countries like Australia that are technologically advanced uh, and very much on the same page when it comes down to threat pers perspective, uh, when it comes down to uh, uh, norms and ethics, uh, I think is crucial. Uh, so yes, I had a very good conversation with my Australian counterpart and, and uh, we did discuss how practically uh, we could collaborate on, on, on these issues. So for example, the, the AI principles of responsible use, uh, I would be very happy if other democratic partners uh, would sign up to these principles uh, because what we're doing is we're sending a signal uh, to three audiences. Uh, one to our public, uh, that we can be trusted. Uh, we are your defense. Uh, uh, we want to use these technologies in line uh, with the broader ethics of our societies. Uh, the second audience is our adversaries. We're stating, well, this is what we find acceptable. Uh, and thereby you can understand what we don't find acceptable. Uh, and, and, and that's the start of a conversation on that. Uh, and third, it's to the private sector that is actually designing these systems. So uh, we're hoping to send a signal, and the more countries sign up, the better, uh, that if you're working on the development and use of AI, uh, then this is uh, what you should take into account as you're doing that. So we're hoping to shape also these commercial developments that are, that are taking place in any case, uh, whether or not we're there or not. So uh, yes, uh, the more the merrier. And, and if at some point we could extend the Diana network uh, to partners, uh, then, then, then I will be very much in favor of that. Excellent. And now for the final kind of uh, uh, round of questions that, that marry some of the, the questions we've had in the Q&A box and I myself was, was interested in um, moving uh, towards the new strategic concept, uh, the Madrid summit next year, uh, EDTs are certainly going to be a, a big part of it, but so will climate change. Um, NATO again has, has made some steps uh, uh, towards uh, that front. Um, so uh, a kind of broader question on uh, how does NATO include climate change into its thinking uh, of uh, innovation and, and kind of advancements in uh, defense and security priorities? Is there talk actually of, of kind of uh, uh, interaction between these two areas or are they at the moment siloed? And uh, if they're not, could you, could you uh, offer us some examples uh, what's being done uh, in, in that regard? So the good thing is that, that my division also deals with the climate change portfolio, uh, uh, as well as cyber, as well as counterterrorism, uh, as well as hybrid warfare, as well as energy security. Um, so uh, it's, it's a rather broad uh, portfolio. But the common denominator, I would say, is that a lot of it uh, focuses on the non-traditional uh, 
threats uh, and threats that uh, uh, come below the threshold of what we call Article 5. Uh, so the threshold of an armed attack on one of our allies. So it's a permanently contested environment, uh, which is not war, which is not peace, uh, and where we need to find an answer as an alliance. So certainly that notion uh, will find its place uh, in the new strategic concept. Uh, and climate change uh, is, is one of the uh, uh, greatest threat multipliers that we know in our time. Uh, and therefore, it's only logical that we turned into the avenue of uh, what does this mean for our security? And the strategy that we have is threefold there. It focuses on awareness, uh, and awareness means we need to know what the implications, uh, second and third order effects of climate change will be on our own nations, uh, and thereby our security, our critical infrastructure, our military uh, uh, footprint, uh, but also on the environment around us. Uh, if we have potential water conflicts uh, skirting uh, uh, the, the, the NATO territory, uh, thereby creating a conflict in our surroundings, then that means something for what we need to prepare for in, in the future. So that's the awareness part. Uh, the second part is the adaptation part. Uh, our soldiers are going to have to work in hotter environments. Uh, our helicopters will be less capable in those environments. Um, uh, we will have extreme weather events. We will have to work in colder temperatures. Uh, we will have more disaster relief uh, operations. We already have military bases uh, that are flooding uh, two or three times a year. So there's all kinds of already happening effects that we need to relate to, that we need to adapt our military to in order to be ready. And the last part, and that's always the one, uh, the most controversial one, uh, is mitigation. So yes, the military emits greenhouse gas emissions, and there's your link with innovation as well. Um, so those that 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 are uh, cynical or skeptical, uh, they always say, well, that means that we can only fire our fighter jets between 10 and 2, uh, and then we have to stop the war because we add our tax of emissions. Uh, or they're joking about tanks on uh, solar uh, panels. Uh, um, to those cynics and skepticals, I always say, well, if you know that the transition, the energy transition is going to take place in the next 50 years, in any case, so the whole of society is moving away from fossil fuel in the next 50 years, then do you really think that the military will be the only sector still running on fossil fuels? Because that means that you will now have to start learning how to become an oil company how to uh, uh, build wells, uh, where are you going to build your refineries? How are you going to have your logistical infrastructure for fossil fuels if no longer uh, the civil uh, world is, is providing that? Uh, and then you see a realization that we, the military will not be excluded from this transition. And then you have a choice. Uh, you can either be at the forefront of innovation uh, in this field, uh, looking at more energy efficient technologies, uh, the use of biofuels, uh, the use of electricity in places where we use fossil fuel. Um, and I think that that's the place that we need to be. So we're slowly working in that direction and, and uh, innovation and green technologies are really going to make a difference. And save lives, by the way. I mean, if you don't have to have logistical fuel convoys uh, in a hostile territory anymore, uh, but you have self-reliant, self-sufficient camps, uh, then that's a huge win from an operational uh, point of view. 
That's excellent. And maybe a kind of a nice place to wrap up. I did have a, a kind of broader final question. If you have in one minute, what is one thing that makes you most hopeful in this play in, in this space? And what is one thing that makes you most worried in terms of general uh, technological advancement uh, and, and uh, its implications for security? So uh, hopeful, uh, Diana has been agreed on at the highest political level. Uh, we have 20 nations that have said, yes, uh, we will uh, invest a billion uh, uh, euros um, uh, into this deep tech dual use innovation. Uh, so very hopeful that we have the political awareness that this is something we need to do. Uh, we need to venture into this, this area. Uh, worrying, uh, uh, we still, as a Western world, have the technological edge. Uh, but if we look at the investments of, for example, the Chinese PLA, uh, which invests $1.6 billion in AI, and that's only the People's Liberation Army, and 60% of that goes to what we would call startups, uh, then um, we have a lot of uh, catching up to do uh, in order to ensure uh, that we tap into uh, uh, the technological superiority that is in our nations, but not necessarily in our defenses. Excellent place to stop then, uh, Mr. Von der Wiel, uh, I or Van Wiel, sorry, I've inserted one, one more article. Uh, I think it's the EU link probably uh, there. But um, uh, thank you so, so much for being uh, with us today. I hope that uh, all of you on the call have uh, benefited. I've certainly learned a lot from the past hour and I do hope that we continue this conversation. And as you said, uh, some of the political commitment is already there, but I, I hope we'll get to discuss more uh, what the kind of practical and, and kind of real life developments are over the, the coming months and years. Uh, so uh, thank you again and thank you uh, to all of you who have been uh, friends of the US Study Center and uh, zooming into these webinars. Uh, so just a, a quick uh, look ahead next week uh, could veritably be called a book week. So on Tuesday, 14th of December, there will be a conversation with Ambassador Martin Indyk on his recent book, Master of the Game, Henry Kissinger and the Art of Middle East Diplomacy that will be moderated by Bruce Wolpe and Victoria Cooper. And then on 16th of December, Thursday, uh, there will be a conversation with the New Yorker's Evan Osnes and his recent book, Wildland, Wild The Making of America's Fury with uh, Charles Edel and John Lee. So make sure that uh, you sign up to these events. Uh, they are all going to be uh, on Zoom just as this one. And uh, of course, we look forward to seeing you in some of the future installments of NATO Expert Series. But that's it from, from me now. Uh, stay well, stay safe. Uh, 